Now we're going to read from God's word. This morning we're reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please, turn in to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned in to him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish, only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in this city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him, And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please, no, my lords. Indeed, now your servant has found favor in your sight. And you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to them, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, 
for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zor. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're going to look at the kindness and the severity of God and why it matters. The text today contains one of the most lurid and, and one of the most alarming scenes in the entire Bible. It centers on the depravity and the destruction of the city of Sodom and all of the surrounding cities on the plain. Sodom had degraded itself as low as humanly possible. It was really a, 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 a depth uh, that uh, could not be uh, surpassed. And, and, and in, in that context, you see the severity of God. You see the severity of God against sin, against their sin. Literally, there was fire and brimstone falling from heaven on the cities. But you also see not only the severity of God, you also see the kindness of God. Literally, you have angels grabbing a family by their hands and, and rescuing them from destruction. Well, how bad had Sodom become? The text tells us that it was an entire city full of wickedness. 
maybe I could illustrate it this way. Did, as you grew up, when you were a kid, did you have bullies in your childhood? Was there a bully when you were a child? There were a few bullies in my childhood. Uh, one, of, one of them shot the windows of, of my house with a BB gun. Another bully punched me in the stomach when I was a kid. And they added excitement, they added drama to my childhood. But by and large, bullies were an exception. They were a very small portion of the people at my school. But can you imagine being in a school, not with two or three bullies, but a school that was entirely populated by bullies? A city, a school where every student was a bully. You would never be safe. You would never be safe in class. You would never be safe at lunch. You would never be safe in the bathroom. You would never be safe on the bus. And what would they do with that kind of school where every student was a bully? Well, sometimes you just, have to, you just have to shut the whole thing down. It can't be fixed. It's too far gone. Well, that's the setting for our text. The entire population of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, they have gone too far. And we see in that the kindness and the severity of God upon these people. So three things from our text. We see the, the severity and the kindness of God, and it tells us repent. The, the severity and kindness of God tell us repent. Secondly, the severity and the kindness of God tell us run. And then thirdly, the severity and the kindness of God tell us resist. Repent, run, resist. The severity and kindness of God tell us repent. Let's look at that first. And, and here's the situation. Verses 1 through 9. In verses 1 through 9, we see the severity of Sodom's sin and we see the severity of God's justice. Both the severity of their sin and the severity of God's justice. Now, when we talk about sin, we need a definition. And here's a definition. Sin is acting against true good. It's acting against true good. Sin is, it's a rejection of good and right. It's a rejection of the good and right to the harm of others and to the harm of, of yourself. And, and who is it that gets to decide what is good, what is right? Well, the one who made the system. The one who made the system and populated the system gets to decide. That's the creator, God. The God who made the universe, who made humanity, he defines what's good and right for all of us, for humanity. And so sin is when we reject God's good and God's right statutes. That, that, that defines sin. Now, look at the severity. Look at the severity of Sodom's sin. Verses 1 through 9 describe a scene in the ancient Middle East. And that, that man, Lot, he's sitting at the gate, and he sees two men arrive to the city. They're travelers. They're strangers to the city. And in that culture, and this is true of many cultures today, in that culture, society understood that travelers should be sheltered, travelers should be brought in and fed. And so if you lived in those times, you would take in strangers, you would take in travelers, and you would give them food, you would offer them shelter, and you would send them on their way. And that's exactly what Lot does. Lot does this. He offers these travelers sincere and generous hospitality. He, he insists 
you will stay in my house. You will not sleep in the open square. And Lot offers these two men a feast at his own table that evening. But then things quickly become bad, severely bad. It's, it's night. It's night. And then verse 4, it says, all, all of the men of the city. And the text emphasizes this. All men, young and old, they surround Lot's house and they're not there to welcome the visitors. They're there to harm the visitors. Now, you, you, you want to enter into the terror of that situation. The terror of having a mob surround your house. Now, if, if you've read accounts of, of lynching, how, how the men of a town might, might mob the house and demand that the person come out. But in this case, it's not over race. It's sex and violence. And verse 5 says, these men of the city, all of them young and old, they demand that Lot bring out the two men. They demand forcible, carnal relations. Now, in Judaism, in Judaism, Judaism strictly forbade both rape and homosexual practice. For instance, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Verse 24, do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. Now, from what we can tell, the surrounding cultures in that day, they had some toleration of homosexual practice, but the surrounding cultures of that day did not, did not tolerate same-sex forced relations. So even the surrounding cultures, they would condemn Sodom for what they were doing. And in, di in addition, the ancient world had a very, very strong hospitality code. It's, it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine because we don't really have that in our country. But strangers and travelers, they absolutely must be treated well. Everyone understood that. And so Sodom's treatment of strangers would especially be deplorable to the whole world. And finally, you have to, you have to, you have to understand and, and see the, 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 the proportionality of this. Sodom is not just a city that has got a little bit of a problem with sex crime. The entire population of Sodom consists of sexual assaulters. It says all of the men of the city all of them demand the two visitors be handed over to them. And so you recall from last week that these two visitors, they're actually not men. They're not human. They are angels, and they're on mission, and they've taken on the appearance of two men. And so we know from the previous chapter that the evil in Sodom, this, this culture of, of sexual violence and rebellion, it had reached the ears of heaven. God sent these angels to assess and to judge these cities. Sodom and Gomorrah. And it would have been something like this, this, this scene. It would be like, you, 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 you come down at night to get something that you forgot. You turn on the lights and you see a roach. And you think, oh, I've got roaches. And so you, you call the pest control company. And, and you call them to come and assess your house. What needs to be done? I, I don't want roaches. And as the exterminator steps into your house in broad daylight, a roach comes out and charges the bug man. Now, when... A roach is attacking the exterminator. You know it is bad. That's what's happening. The angels have come 
and they're attacked. So verse 13, the angels tell Lot that they came to destroy the city for its great sin. They say in verse 13, for we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now here's the point. With severe sin, God is severe. With severe sin, God is severe. It's because God is just. God is just. In our country, we've got these three branches of of governmental function, right? We've got the law-making branch, the legislative branch. We have the executive branch, where the laws are enforced. We've got the judicial branch, where the laws are judged, where justice needs to be rendered. Well, God encompasses all three of those governmental functions. He makes the moral laws of the universe, but God also enforces and judges the moral laws of the universe. It has to be that way. But God is slow to anger in doing that. He's slow to anger. He's patient. God has a very long fuse. But because God is just, he must bring judgment. He has to. And, and the passage is just, is just stuffed with destruction language. Just cast your eyes over some of it. All of this destruction language. Verse 11, the angels strike the city men with blindness. Verse 13, the angels will destroy the place. The Lord sent them to destroy. Verse 14, the Lord will level the city. Verse 15, the city will be swept away in punishment. Verse 17, the city and all the surrounding land will be eradicated. It's like the, they used to have this thing called the Moab. The mother of all bombs will be dropped. Verse 21, God will overthrow the city, knock it down like a Jenga tower. Verse 24, burning sulfur, fire, will fall from the skies, thrown by God, shower the city and the land, burning it to ash. Now, think about, think about what it's like when, when you might be cooking and there's cooking oil and some of it splashes you and lands on your skin, lands on your hand, lands on your face. You know what the problem is with, with getting burned with, with cooking oil, right? It's not just that it's hot, it's that you can't get it off and as it's sitting on you, it is still so hot that it's burning you. Even if you wipe it off, it just spreads the burning heat and scorches deep into your skin. Then, then verse 25, the Lord uses language like this, demolishes. He demolishes the city and the inhabitants and every living thing on the land. And then verse 28, more destruction language. People who are far away can see the smoke of Sodom's ruin rising on the horizon. In the New Testament, 2 Peter 2, it says, God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, just gray featureless powder. With severe sin, God is severe. But this is the challenge. When the severity of sin hits God's limits, and he must act, the point where the severity starts to boil over and God who is just must act, by definition, it is a a once-in-a-lifetime action. And what that means is this. That means you have never lived through it before. You have never lived through this act of God because it's a once in a lifetime thing. And that means when it happens, you will hardly believe that it is happening. You read about people who have, maybe you know, maybe this has been you. You read about people who have been mugged or robbed or assaulted. And, and 
And for a high fraction of these people, when the crime is over, and they're just talking about what happened when they, when they got beat up, when they, they got stuck up, for, for a, quite a few people, their main thought, as it is happening, as they're being hit, as their purse is being snatched from them, it's just utter disbelief. They, they're thinking, the whole time as it's happening, they're thinking, this can't be happening. I can't believe this is happening. As it was happening, they can't believe that it's actually happening. And you see that here. Lot is warning his sons-in-law. Verse 14, he tells them, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But his sons-in-law, to them, he seemed to be joking. If you're visiting with us this morning for the first time, welcome. What a morning to be visiting us. But let me be direct. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that a day is coming. There is a day coming when God will utterly disrupt the world. Again, God is going to judge the world, not just there in this ancient scene, but humanity has been accumulating sin. And I think we all agree that something is wrong. And I think we all would agree that everybody is offended about something. Somewhere in all of that accumulation, we have run up a bill, human beings. It's bigger than the national debt. We're like, we're like hoarders. We lie. We, we, every, every lie that we've told, every lust, every loveless word, it's like each one of those things is like a used up Kleenex, a used up tissue. You blow your nose into it, but instead of disposing of it, a hoarder, what does a hoarder do with, with their trash? We've kept it in the house, and now our house is full and stuffed with our junk. The Lord will come to burn it down, and we will not expect his coming. And so are, are you ready for the great interruption? Later on in the New Testament, Luke 17, Jesus describes just how oblivious most of the world will be on that day, when God interrupts and when God comes and brings judgment on the world. Luke 17, verse 26, Jesus says, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And so what Jesus is saying is that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was just a preview. It was just like the trailer for the actual film. It was just a preview of the real judgment that is to come. And I call it an interruption because when God does come, when God comes to judge the world, when he comes to judge you and judge me, he's going to interrupt us. Some of us may be at the store in line just picking up some food. Some of us may just be shopping. Some of us might be gardening. Others might be on their honeymoon. But God will interrupt life. And for some, his interrupting judgment will be terror and shock. But for others, it's going to be the joy of their lives. Maybe you're listening to this and you want to say, okay, this, this sounds incredibly primitive. It sounds incredibly pr- crude. But part of it, part of you finds it plausible. Think about it. Don't we all understand that? You read the news. You, you hear about the asteroid, the risk of an asteroid strike. Don't we all understand that an asteroid, even just of modest size, 
It could obliterate an entire city, obliterate an entire country. You've read about that, right? And, and there, that really is a terror because as you read it, you realize it, it's not so much a matter of if an asteroid struck the Earth. It's really a matter of when and of what magnitude. And worse about the whole asteroid thing, the, the thing is, they all say, we'll likely have no warning about it, that many of these asteroids are too small to detect, or in the glare of the sun, they're too difficult to detect. And, and the asteroid can't be stopped. What will you be doing when the asteroid strikes the Earth with no warning? What will you be doing? The account of Sodom tells you what you need to be doing, what you need to be doing even today. It calls you to repent, to turn around, to turn to God, to, to repent or to be destroyed. Repent or repent or receive the worst shock of your entire life. Now, some of you, some of you like having, on your birthday, you like having surprise birthday parties. And so people will organize them for you. And some of you really hate surprise birthday parties. And I understand that. And so you tell the people who love you, do not, under any circumstance, throw me a surprise birthday party. I will not like it. In this, you have no say. The judge of the world will come. He will come like a thief when we're not expecting it, when we're asleep. And so, turn. Turn now. Turn to God. Repent. Don't try to wait for a better time. Now is the time. Now is the day of salvation. Now, we see the severity and the kindness of God tells us to repent. Secondly, the severity and the kindness of God tells us to run. To run. Verse 12, the angels tell Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. And then verse 15, look at the urgency that they bring. Verse 15, when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. Verse 17, they say, escape, run. Verse 22, hurry. Verse 16, but Lot lingered. Lot lingered. Why is he is he in shock? Is he frozen in panic? Verse 16, while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand and his wife's hand and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out. Lot is dragging his feet. And so in mercy, they take his hands and they drag him out. Verse 17, being outside of the city, they tell Lot to run. They tell him, run, run to the mountains. But Lot protests. Verse 19, he says, I can't run to the mountains. Can you make an exception? Can I just stay here in the plain? Can I go to this little city on the periphery, Zor? So at first, we maybe we were thinking, was Lot, was he just frozen in panic? Did he just freeze in panic? But at this point, when Lot starts bargaining, when, when Lot starts negotiating with God, we see why he didn't run. It wasn't panic. Why Lot keeps delaying? Why he keeps dragging his feet instead of obeying 
the call from God. If you're a Christian, here's something you want to note. God wants prompt obedience, not delayed obedience. God wants prompt obedience, not dragging our feet. Now, why? Because delay, delaying to obey, it indicates a divided heart. It means your heart is divided. Look, look here at, at Lot's divided heart. Lot knows that he must leave the city, but the angels have to drag him by the hand out of the city. The angels tell him to flee to the mountains, but instead Lot asks, can't I just have this little town and not have to go away so far? Lot wants to hold on to some of the city, some of the culture. He doesn't want to let all of it go. The little town, he reasons, the little town will only have a little bit of the evil. He doesn't want to go to the mountains where none of that culture, no one lives. And so Lot's heart is, is divided. Lot knows he's got to get out of the evil place, but he doesn't want full separation from Sodom. His delay indicates a divided heart. Now, how about you? How about you? Maybe there's something that the word of God tells you, you've got to be done with this. Some controlling substance, some show that you like watching, some lust, some, some influence in your life that is unholy, some practice that scripture forbids, some idol that for you still sparks joy. You know, you know that you need to get out of your lover's bed, but you're lingering there. You know that you need to be done with it, but you're delaying. You will give it up for 20 days, but on the 21st day, you will go back just one more time, you tell everyone. Listen to the words of 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. A divided heart will eventually cleanly break only in one direction. And so, run. Run like Joseph. Run like Joseph did when a powerful and a sensual woman the wife of another man, when this woman tried to bed Joseph, he ran, he ran. And note this, when you run, you may run because of the severity of God. You realize this is danger, I've got to run. And so you may run because of the severity of God, but you also, if you are a believer, you also run because of the kindness of God. It was the kindness of God that made Joseph run from sin. She was trying to sleep with him, but Joseph pled the kindness of God as he ran. Genesis 39.9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Lot said, Lot said to those angels, you've shown me great kindness. Joseph said, how can I sin against the God who has only been kind to me all my life? And so, when you are tempted, believer, when you are tempted, and you linger in that place of temptation, run, run. 
And as you run, plead the kindness of God and run. Stop, stop rolling over your tongue the imagined pleasures of the temptation. Just spit it out and put the kindness of God. Put the kindness of God on the big screen in your mind. Put the great mercies of God to you, forefront, in front of the fading pleasures of sin for a season. That's what happened. That's what Adam and Eve failed to do with that one fruit. They lost their grip when they started staring at the one fruit instead of looking at that broad, giant orchard of fruit that surrounded them. They completely lost view of God's kindness. Instead of seeing the whole garden that God gave, they just kept looking at that one forbidden fruit. And isn't that what Lot's wife does here? She had a divided heart. Verse 26, Lot's wife looked back and it destroyed her. But when a person becomes a Christian, over and over what you realize is this. You understand that this is a call to leave everything, to leave everyone to follow Jesus. It's only him and everything for him. Luke 17, 32, Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. Remember, Jesus says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. And so believer, when you are tempted, and you will be tempted, I will be tempted, you will be tempted. When you are tempted to sin, what keeps you looking? What keeps you lingering? What keeps you longing for that sin? What will keep you from doing that? What will stop you from lingering? What will stop you from lingering and looking at it? It is what Jonathan Edwards called, what he coined as the expulsive power of a new affection. What will push out your love for your pet sin? What will push it out? Willpower is not enough to push it out. Mere self-discipline is not enough to push it out. It's a stubborn thing. It's got a deep root. You've got to replace your sin love with a new love. And what new love are we talking about? It's the new love that you have for Jesus, your rescuer. That love, your love for him will push out your love of sin. It's the new love for Jesus that will make you look and linger on him, not on the forbidden thing. First Peter 1, 7 and 8 says, Jesus Christ, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. How do you get that love for Jesus? How do you get that kind of love for Jesus? A love that will push out your love for anything else. It's in the gospel. In this incident that we're reading about at Lot's house, a mob surrounded Lot's house at night and they demanded that Lot turn over the heavenly strangers in order that they would be personally violated. Now, Lot, Lot was noble. Lot interposed himself between the mob and the door to his house, but Lot was also less than noble. Lot also offers his virgin daughters in place of the heavenly visitors. But in the gospel, Jesus loved you so much that he offered himself to the armed mob in the night and Jesus was not rescued. The mob took him and the mob had their way with him. Jesus was personally violated. 
Strong men stripped Jesus and crucified him naked so that you could escape the destruction for sin. Jesus was violated so that you could be valued by God. And Jesus was made sin so that you could be loved by God and not have to face the destruction. You know that someone truly loves you. You know that someone truly loves you if they're willing to pay a terrible cost to spare you personal destruction. Do you see that Jesus did that? It's something you, you, you want to look long at that. And if you do, as you do that, it will deepen your love for him. It deepens it so that you know that God has been kind to me in Christ. If you see that, it changes you. So the, se the severity and kindness of God tell us to repent. The severity and kindness of God tell us to run. And then finally, the severity and kindness of God tell us resist. Resist. Resist the allure to love Sodom. Resist the pressure to be shaped by Sodom. Now, what do I mean by being shaped by Sodom? Look at Lot. Lot is... Um, just from a literary perspective, Lot is, is a complex and a very mixed person. And part of the complexity that we find in Lot is because Lot's divided. Look at how complex Lot is. You see it in his boldness. You see it in Lot's boldness. You see in Lot great boldness. He resists the men of Sodom. He, he steps in front. But his boldness is also mixed with cowardice. Lot offers his daughters. Lot's terrified to run to the mountains. Look at Lot's faithfulness. You see in Lot wonderful faithfulness, faithful truth-telling, faithful living. He has a good reputation in the city. His righteous living, it says, condemned the men of Sodom, and they didn't like it in the past. He speaks faithfully and tries to warn his sons to flee, but we also see faithlessness in him, faithless dithering. He tries to bargain down judgment. He tries to retain just a little bit, just a little bit of Sodom for himself. You see his boldness, you see his faithfulness, and then you also see honor. You see honor. Lot has honor. He's, he's someone who sits in the place of civil government and respect. He sits in the city gate. But in the life of Lot, we also see mixed with that honor, you see shame and dishonor. His shameful sons who were born because he got drunk and he was involved in incest. In the end, Lot is not condemned because he lived in Sodom. But we do see this. Lot let himself be shaped by Sodom. Lot let Sodom shape him. Lot started to love Sodom's values. And his divided love is what accounts for him offering his daughters to the mob. His divided love accounts for him lingering outside of the mountains. His divided love accounts for his drunkenness and for his daughter's sexual values. How is, how is Sodom shaping your values? How are the people and the pursuits of your city, your media, shaping your values? Are you becoming distinct? Are you becoming a noble man, a noble woman? Or are you starting to share your love for Sodom, with Sodom? Consider Lot's mixed boldness. What's going to make you bold and not cowardly? We'll look at 
look at and love Jesus, the only one who stood in boldness when all of his friends fled. How about Lot's mixed faithfulness? How will you become faithful, utterly faithful? What will make you faithful to speak and to speak out? Well, you've got to look at and you've got to love Jesus, the only one who spoke faithfully when his friends would deny him. What will give you honor? What will give you honor in the community? An honorable behavior in private when no one else sees. Well, you've got to look at and you've got to love Jesus, the only one who lived a fully honorable life without any shameful secret, with no shameful sons. He's the only one who's honorable. Jesus is bold. Jesus is faithful. Jesus lived with honor. And when you see that Jesus has done it all, that you can't do it all, but that Jesus did it for you, then you love him for that. And you just want to do it. I'm just close with an illustration. When I was 10 years old, I spent a year away, out of state, living with relatives. I lived with relatives in another state for a year. And in that year away from home, I wanted to be liked by the other 10-year-olds. I wanted to be admired by them. And so I knew what I would need to do to fit in and to gain their respect, to gain their praise. Just on a simple level, my language, I said things. I used four-letter words that my parents had never heard me utter. It was just the, the traffic of what, what I did around those friends in order to be liked. What would have happened if I hadn't come back after a year and gone back home? Where would I have ended if I had stayed longer and let all of that, willingly let all of that influence me? I'll close by reading to us words from 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we love the place of Sodom and that we, by our own actions and by our own record, we are fit to be destroyed. But Jesus, you came and in mercy, you have taken the punishment for us and you've given us a righteous record and you've rescued us. It was in mercy you grabbed our hands and you, you saved us. We thank you for saving us. We thank you for this demonstration that you love us and we love you. We love Christ, the righteous one. Would you put in us, would you put in us a determination and a distaste for sin and a determination to be done with it, to be fully done with it? And would you cause us to run to Jesus, to run towards the life? In Jesus' name we ask, amen.